I'm Sarah Lippman. Welcome to Torati Mecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today we will be learning Divrei Hayamim Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 7. In Chapter 4, we learned about Yehuda and Shimon, the tribes who lived south of Jerusalem. In Chapter 5, we learned about Reuven, God, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who all lived east of Jerusalem across the River Jordan. In Chapter 6, we learned about the families of the Levium, next in the family order, and carrying responsibility for a portion of the Bechorah, the responsibilities of the firstborn, tending to the spiritual needs of their family. Now in chapter 7, we'll learn about the tribes settled north of Jerusalem. Yisachar in verses 1 through 11, Dan, verse 12, Naphtali, verse 13, Menasheh, verses 14 through 19, Ephraim, verses 20 to 29, Asher, verses 30 to 40, and Binyamin in the next chapter. And for the sons of Yisachar, Tola, Pua, Yashuv, and Shimron, four, and the sons of Tola, Uzi, Rephaiah, Yiriel, Yachmaiv, Sam, and Shmuel, heads of the families of Tola, mighty warriors throughout their generations, Giborei, Chayel, Letoldo, Sam, their number in the days of David was 22,600. Wow! Giborei Chayel Letoldosam, generation after generation of mighty warriors. With Hashem's help, we'll speak more about this term, mighty warriors, in chapter 11. For now, let's suffice to note that these Giborei Chayel, these warriors, are the best of the best of the tribe of Yisachar, a tribe known for its mighty scholarship even more than its might at arms. And the sons of Uzi, Yizrachia, and the sons of Yizrachia, Michael, Ovadia, Yoel, Yishia, five heads in all. Under them by their generations, according to their families and military units, 36,000 men. They had many wives and children. Here we have one of the early indications of how Ezra brings together greatness in the form of military and spiritual strength. And their brothers and all the families of Yisachar, mighty warriors, 87,000, all with their genealogies recorded. Benjamin, Bela, Becher, and Yedael, three. In verse 12, we learn about the family of Dan, but in a most cryptic way. Veshupim, Vechupim, Bnei Ir, Chushim, Bnei Acher. Shupim and Chupim, the sons of Ir, Chushim, the sons of Acher. Why is Dan called here Acher, meaning other or backward? Yaakov, Dan's father, blessed him in Bracious 49, saying, Dan will champion the rights of his people as much as any one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will act as a serpent on the highway, a viper on the path, attacking with cunning, not with size, biting a horse's heels, so his rider falls Achor, backward. For your help do I hope, O God. This translation is according to Rav Shamshon Rafal Hirsch. In general, the tribe of Don tends to be associated with following behind, achor. Not necessarily less good, but certainly needing to overcome some degree of weakness through prayer and strategic cunning. There is also an acher, an otherness aspect associated with Don because of their connection to Avodazara, idol worship. King Yeravam's first idol was erected in Dan's territory. 
Rav Moshe Eisman in the Art Scroll Divrei Hayamim suggests that this usage of acher to refer to one who turns away from their relationship with Hashem may be the source of the Talmud's references to Elisha ben Avuya as acher after he turned away from his practice of Torah. Verse 13, B'nai Naftali, Yechatziel, Veguni, V'yatzer, V'shalom B'nai Vilha. The sons of Naftali, Yechatziel, Guni, Yetzer, and Shalom, sons of Bilha. It's just this one verse. The tribe of Dan and the tribe of Naftali each have one verse listing their family. Verses 14 through 19, the tribe of Menashe, son of Yosef. We're struck by the prominence of the role that the women of the tribe of Menashe play. It's more visible than that in other tribes. In verse 14, we see a Pilegesh, a concubine wife, who raises not only her own son, but her grandson or great-grandson, Asriel. Asriel becomes the most important man in the tribe, as indicated by the similarity of his name to the name Yisrael, the glorious name of the house of Jacob. In verse 15, we have a sister, Ma'acha, listed, and a son, Tzlafchad. Vatiyena litzlafchad banos. Tzlafchad's daughters were to him true banos, true stones, layers that extended the work and the construct he had built even further. Tzlafchad's daughters were famously righteous scholars. They were wise and they were good. They approached Moshe Rabbeinu in the wilderness to assert their halachic right to inherit their father's portion in Eretz Yisrael. Their reasoning was true. They introduced new halachos to the Torah for us. Says the Torah in Bamidbar chapter 27, And they approached the daughters of Tzalafchad, son of Chefer, son of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, in the family of Menashe, son of Yosef. And these are the names of his daughters, Machla, Noah, Vechagla, Umilka, Vetirza, each of them a personality in her own right, each of them a righteous woman worth mentioning. But why are Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza not only mentioned in and of themselves, but attributed for six generations all the way to Yosef himself? Rashi explains over there, Lomarlacha to teach you Yosef Chivev Esaaretz. Yosef loved and cherished Eretz Yisrael, uvnosav and his daughters, true extensions of their family line, also cherished and loved the land. They were active, they were proactive to keep hold of their share in the land. They didn't want their father's inheritance to be lost to them and their family. So here we have a beautiful quality, love of the land of Israel, so powerfully present in Yosef that it remains a defining characteristic of his children for many generations to follow. In fact, it's likely that the reason that half of the tribe of Menashe was asked to join the tribes of Reuven and Gad on the eastern banks of the Jordan River was because their love of the land was so deep they could be counted on to stay connected to the other half-tribe on the western side. Hopefully also they would elevate Reuven and Gad help keep them connected with the rest of the nation as well. Verses 20 through 29 begin the story of the tribe of Ephraim, the other son of Yosef. The sons of Ephraim, Shuselach and Vered, Tachas and Elada, and his son Tachas, and his son Zavad, his son Shushalach, and Ezer and Elad, the Haragum Anshe Gos Hanoladim Ba'aretz. But the men of Gos, who were native to the land, killed them. 
Ki Ardula Kachasas Miknehem, as they came to carry off their cattle. Vayisabel Ephraim Avihem Yomim Rabim, and their father Ephraim mourned for them for many, many days. Vayavo Echav Lenachamo, and his brothers came to comfort him. In this passage, Ezra gives us more detail about an event only very, very lightly hinted to in the Torah in Parshas B'Shalach. Thirty years before the Jewish nation as a whole was redeemed from Egypt by Moshe Rabbeinu, 300,000 of the children of Ephraim successfully escaped the tightest security prison ever known. But as they approached the land of Israel, the plishtim wiped them out. So hidden right here in Parshas B'Shalach, and explained slightly more here in Divrei Hayamim, we find the first massacre, one of the holocausts of Jewish history, 300,000 killed. And what did they do wrong? They were just trying to get to the land of Israel. They're just trying to fulfill their geula. Maybe they were acting out of faith. Maybe they trusted that they needed to take action to help themselves. Why should God help them have a miraculous escape from high-security Egypt and just kill them before they even get to Israel? Just let them fail to escape and be trapped there. They'll find out 30 years later when Moshe shows up that now it's really the time to go. Why do such terrible things happen to such well-intentioned people? God's ways are far deeper than we can comprehend. And God's timeline is far broader than we have the capacity to hold in our minds. Yechezkel the prophet, speaking at a time closer to Ezra's, between the destruction of the first temple and the building of the second one, had a prophecy. In chapter 37 of Yechezkel, he says, God came to me in prophecy, and he took me outside, and he placed me in a valley, and the valley was full of bones. And he took me to survey them all around. They were so many bones covering the entire valley, and they were exceedingly dry. And God said to me, O human, will these bones ever live? And I said, Hashem, my God, only you know. And God said to me, I want you to try to have a prophecy about these bones. I want you to tell these dry bones, listen to the word of Hashem. So says Hashem Elohim to these dry bones. I am bringing you back to life. I put spirit into you and you shall live. I will put upon you ligaments. I will raise upon you flesh. I will knit together your skin and bones. I will put spirit within you. You will live and you will know Kiani Hashem that I am the infinite God. And so says Yechezkel, I said over this prophecy as God had told me to these dry dead bones. And I heard a voice as I spoke. It was a great noise of the bones as they clattered against each other, bone against bone. And upon them were forming muscles and ligaments, flesh and blood, and the bones knit together with skin upon them, but they were not yet alive. And God said to me, Prophesize, you human. 
tell the bones that God is coming to put spirit and life within them from all four corners. I shall bring it to them into these dead and they will live. And so I relayed the prophecy as God had told me. And in fact, a spirit of life came into them and they came alive and they stood up upon their feet, a mighty, mighty multitude. And God said to me, human, these bones, these bones are the house of Israel, they are. They thought they were too dry. They said, our bones have dried, our hope has dried and lost. All has been decreed against us. Therefore, I want you to tell them, so says Hashem Elohim, I have opened your graves. I have raised you from your graves, my nation. I will bring you to me to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Hashem, the infinite God, who can open your graves, who can bring you to me. I have put life into you. I have brought you alive. I will bring you to peaceful rest upon your land. I have said it. I shall do it, says God. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, page 92, teaches, The dead who were revived in the time of Yechezkel, whatever happened to them, Alu Eretz Yisrael, they went up to Eretz Yisrael, v'nas'u nashim, they married v'holidu banimuvanos, and gave birth to generations to follow. And when this statement was made in the base Midrash, Ahmad Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra al-Raglov, Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra stood up on his feet, the Amar, and said, Ani mi bnei bneihem, I am a descendant of theirs. Vehalalu tefillin sheheniachli avi abomehem. And the tefillin I am wearing are an inheritance I got from those ancestors. Uma'ani nehu mesim Who were these dead? that Yechezkel brought alive, that were so alive, they came to Israel, they built homes, they had families. Great, righteous scholars were descended from them. Who were they? Amar Rav, Rav taught, Elu Ephraim, Shemanu These are the children of Ephraim who tried to calculate at what point they should leave Egypt and were wrong. We're forced to completely rethink our understanding of the fate of the Bnei Ephraim. They were wrong. They were mistaken. But they did mean for the best. They did seek to serve Hashem as best they knew how. And Hashem helped them. He helped them escape. He brought them to the doorway of Eretz Yisrael. But what would have happened if they had managed to get into the land of Israel at the time they first arrived? The children of Ephraim were children of Israel, but they had never heard the word of God through Moshe Rabbeinu. They had never brought a Korban Pesach, sitting around their tables with their bags packed, ready to go. They had never experienced the miracles of Egypt. They had never crossed the Red Sea and experienced the Shekhinah. They didn't have the mitzvahs of Shabbos, of Rosh Chodesh, of Tefillin that all the rest of the Jewish people received as they left Egypt. The mighty hand, the outstretched arm of the exodus of Egypt had not yet occurred. The children of Ephraim would have entered the land of Israel and been just another Canaanite tribe lost entirely to any Jewish future. 
instead of letting the children of Ephraim be lost in the mists of time, God allowed them to be massacred and wait for nearly a thousand years until the next Geulah, the next redemption, the return from Bavel. And when they returned and came into Eretz Yisrael and built homes and had children, they were able to join the people of Torah and have tefillin to hand down generation to generation. Instead of what would have looked like immediate success, God gave them the greater good. He gave them a future in this world and the next. As Rav Yonason Ibishitz wrote in a letter of consolation to his newly widowed sister-in-law, God suffers when we are in pain. He cares about us. He also has the power to change everything. He can take away all of our suffering. Therefore, we realize that if it weren't for the fact that whatever we are going through is in fact the greatest kindness, the most long-term good that God could give us, we wouldn't have to suffer. God knows what's good for us. We are relieved to know that He is in control. And without a doubt, there is some comfort to be found in that good things happen to good people. But from a human point of view, it can take a very long time to see the results. Verses 30 through 40 walk us through the lineage of the tribe of Asher, thus concluding a chapter that spans an enormous breadth of history, helps us open our minds to seeing the message of Ezra. History is long and destiny is forever. Thank you for learning together with me. Le'ilui Nishmas, Rose Foreman, Rezel Rachel Bas Arye Leib, and Rachel Zeitlin.